Hey, welcome to the Portrait Church Podcast. Pastor Jay here, and I'm excited for you to listen to this message as part of our vision series here at Portrait Church. I hope these messages give you insight into how we as a church are going to follow and live the lifestyle of Jesus. If you would love to know more about our church, you can visit portrait.church online or find us on social media or find us at the Mitten Building on Sundays. Hope you enjoy this message and hope to see you soon. We are on the last Sunday of our vision series here at Portrait. And, and essentially what this has served um, as is um, like you all came in today and you sat, out, sat on those chairs. Now, maybe some of you thought about that more deeply, like, yo, this chair looked like a little, it looked, you know, maybe a little squeaky, you know, you never know, like with some chairs at events or different venues, and, um, but, but you sat in it, you trusted it, you let it hold your weight. And for us, this vision series is, is essentially like the chair that we are saying we are sitting in and, and how we believe, how we will behave, the values that we hold. And so every post, there's four posts of the chair, um, for us symbolically represents the, the different great, the, the different, what we call them, the four greats that we hold true as a church. And so the first leg of that chair, if you hadn't been with us, I'm going to give you a quick recap. And I think it's always good for us to sit in the reality of the, the Bible being this, this incredible epic narrative that continues to point us to Jesus. And it says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and he said everything was good. And then he looked at mankind and he did something completely different. He got down and he fixed some dirt together and he breathed his very life into humanity and he made them male and female and he said that it was really good and he made them in his image and in his likeness. And, and he looks at everything and not just them and he says, oh man, this is so good. This is how it ought to be. This is where we get this idea of shalom. This is perfect unity. It's a perfect design. It's for human flourishing. The creator, the designer of everything designed you with dignity. And he said to domain that how you live and how you influence and the things that you do are to bring him glory. This was the great mandate. But then humanity would begin to think that they were better designers than God. They began to think that they could do this life without him, that maybe God is holding out on us. And so sin would enter the world and sin is essentially the absence of God's goodness. It is essentially to miss the mark of how God has called us, how God has designed us to live, the purpose that God gave us. We have then missed the mark because we chose as sin to put I in the middle. And so then God would create these, create a covenant promise with this man named Abraham uh, he would continue to save his people because he wanted to make a great nation, a great name out of them. He created these laws. Many of you know them as the Ten Commandments because he wanted his people to be really distinct. See, back then in context, that these laws were going to help like that goodness spread, to help justice spread, to help peace spread. But as we see throughout all of the Old Testament, nobody could actually fulfill this rescue mission of reconciliation, this bringing back this shalom, this perfect union that humanity had with God. 
And so then God looks out and he's like, man, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm going to send my son. And so he sends Jesus and Jesus lives this perfect, spotless, blameless life. He comes to restore dignity to those who have been on the margins. He came to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, let the lame walk. And he does this perfectly. He executes goodness perfectly. He executes God's justice perfectly. He executes God's love perfectly. And then we're reminded in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus lives perfectly and he takes our broken, destroyed, sinful rap sheet and he says, oh, I love y'all so much that I'm gonna provide an opportunity for this rap sheet to be exchanged. And so now for those of you that put your faith in Jesus, you sit in the chair of belief of who Jesus is and believe that that's going to hold and sustain your life, believing in what he's done, that is going to now create what we know as the great exchange. That now when you go before God, he, do, he no longer sees your sin, he sees his son. And that is such a beautiful exchange. Y'all, I, I, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, the second you and I get tired of that exchange, we should be worried. We should be worried about what we are hungering for. We should be worried about what belief we are sitting in. Jesus says, do not think in Matthew 5 that I have come to abolish the law of prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. And then when Jesus is asked what we heard last week, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law that you just said that you fulfilled? And he replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The essence of Christianity is rooted in this, a fervent love for God that is demonstrated in love for neighbor. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and have all this knowledge and I have faith that can move a mountain, but I do not have love. This is what Paul says. I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. See, the, one of the issues with Christianity today is Christians have a lot of passion for saying the right things. Christians have a lot of passions for telling other people how they're not saying the right things. But can I tell you that the road, one of the roads to destruction is paved with people with perfect theology. 
They're engaged in all these culture wars and telling everybody else what they're not doing wrong. And they get so passionate about expelling evil in the community, so passionate about expelling evil in our city, so passionate about expelling evil in Washington, D.C., that they forgot the most evil thing that you and I can do as a Christian is fail to faithfully love God and love his people. We have failed to faithfully love God and love his people. John 13, Jesus says, a new command I give, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples if you vote the same way. It's not what he said. Everyone will know you are my disciples if you make sure to call out everybody who posted that thing on Facebook. It's not what he said. Everyone will know you are my disciples if you do X, Y, Z. No, he says, everybody will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And so now, in our text this morning, we have a risen Jesus, fresh off the resurrection. He reveals himself to both Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. And he tells them, hey, you need to go get my guys. You need to go get them because I've risen. And he says, tell them to meet me up in Galilee on the mountainside. And here is when Jesus gives what we know as the Great Commission, our last, last leg of the faith and the behaviors and the values that we believe in. The Great Commission, this is what Jesus says. If you're with me, you can turn to Matthew 28. We're going to park here. You can leave that open on your app, your Bible. We're going to walk through this text together. He says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything. Everybody say that. Everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. With his final words in the book of Matthew, Jesus is giving his disciples, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that word in a minute, the blueprint, the marching orders, the, the, he's giving them the, the, the way in which he wants them to use this authority. This is an imperative, which means it's a command. And how he starts this command is he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Authority, the right to give orders, to power, to make decisions. It is a state of control. I think the question that we need to really sit in and ponder here is, Jesus, how did you get your authority? We live in a world that, This idea of authority has caused a ton of mistrust in people. But listen to the way Jesus got his authority. Jesus got his authority by being obedient to his father's plans. He came to serve. He put on human flesh and he came to suffer. He came to die a death that he did not deserve. He was subject to a a brutal flogging and scourging. 
with a whip, with multiple leather, with, with multiple leather thongs, with bits of metal and bone attached to him, causing several lacerations, bleeding out in his back, being mocked, being mocked by Roman soldiers, placing a crown of thorn on his head, causing additional pain and bleeding, saying, aren't you the king of the Jews? forced to carry his own wooden beam to his crucifixion, being nailed to the cross through his hands and his feet, which would have caused more extreme pain and bleeding, being suspended by those very nails, causing further pain and difficulty being able to breathe. And then the piercing with the spear. Piercing in the side was an act intended to ensure the death was certain. This Jesus looked at you and I, he looked at our rap sheets and said, I'm still going to die for them. Malcolm Gladwell has this book called Outliers and there's this scientific principle that's been going around for for many of years now and it's about the 10,000 rule. That basically those who have some level of mastery authority, they spend 10,000 hours crafting and working on that thing. And after 10,000 hours, they have the authority, they have the mastery. Can I tell you something about Jesus? He only needed 72 hours to master defeat. And matter of fact, if we're being honest, He really didn't even need those full 72 hours. He used it to make sure that it would be ensured that he would die so that they would know that he was dead. Because after the first day, it's like many people in that that context, they they wait by the tomb side because it's like, is this this really happening? 72 hours. And he raises from the dead, raises from the dead, defeating death. So guess what? Yeah, all authority belongs to him. That is how Jesus got his authority. Obedience, serving, and suffering. Is that how our world tends to get their authority? Nah, it's power, it's money, coercion, false promises. The first step of this process Jesus calls discipleship that we will later define starts with the process of authority being transferred to those that put their faith in Jesus. We get access. We get to piggyback off this shared divine authority. I have a good friend named Mike. And Mike is a videographer. And Mike is a videographer for a guy named Lecrae, Andy Minio, and like really well-known Christian rap artist, okay? And um, so Mike invites me to go to the show that's local. So I show up early and I go to a different door than everybody else go to. And I go through a different line and I go there not because Jay Stobal's name is on there, but because Mike Falabi's name is on there. So I get in and I get access, not because of me, but because of Mike. Then I get to sit in a special part of the concert. Not because Jay's name is on there, but because Mike's name is on there. Then I got to go backstage all giddy, you know, meeting Lecrae and Andy Mill. Yeah, what's up, guys? What's up? Yeah, 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 yeah. All of a sudden, my voice got all Barry White-ish, right? It's like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like. But I get to go backstage, not because of my name, but because of Mike's. 
because Mike was the one given the authority. So I am sharing in his authority and it's borrowed. Same thing with Jesus. And here's the problem. A major problem that has happened throughout the history of the church and I think is happening in the most recent decade today is that we have Christians who are pursuing authority without Jesus. We have Christians that are pursuing authority without Jesus. And you know what happens? They become authoritarians. And when you pursue authority without Jesus and become an authoritarian, you begin demanding that people obey completely everything you say and refusing them to allow in freedom. How many more traumatic incidents does the church have to be called out for? Southern Baptist Convention, the largest evangelical Protestant institution, 288 pages of sexual abuse cover-up. If you're familiar with the Catholic Church, one study I was reading in the last 25 years, over 250,000 thousand boys molested. You can just Google trauma, church, abuse, church, and just search for days and days. This week, this has caused me with even greater fervency, greater passion to get on my knees and say, God, would this never be said of me? Would this never be said of our church? Would we never try to pursue authority apart from you? How much more? A couple years ago, I came across this devastating story of a, it was a, a, a village out in the middle of a part of Canada. And this village had experienced their first missionary ever coming in the air quotes authority of Jesus leaving, molesting 50-plus boys. So now you have a whole village who distrusts the name of Jesus because of how he exercised his authority. A whole village who has a distorted picture of this Yahweh, this God, coming down in the form of a servant who got his authority through obedience, serving, and suffering. That's not the picture that this village in Ontario, Canada is left with. And stories like this should break our heart. It should challenge us and call us to give people a renewed picture of Jesus. Spurgeon and a very well-known theologian said that power in the hands of some people is dangerous, but power in the hands of Christ is blessed. Oh, let him have all the power. Let him do what he will with it, for he cannot will anything but that which is right and just and true and good. This goes back to everything that we've learned about God being the designer, is that everything he touches, everything he creates is good and just. So much so that in this great exchange, when God got justice, we got righteousness. God got justice by killing his own son so that you and I would get righteousness. This is a different kind of authority, y'all. And if we don't sit in it, we will then do what the abusers and Christianity will, continue, will have done before. So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, we are to humble ourselves under God's perfect authority. 
And we are to pursue leading, working, being in the classroom, influencing in his way and not ours. And listen to what he says with this shared authority. He says, we are to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, I don't, I grew up and, and part of it was actually more of like my college years with this understanding that going and making disciples of all nations meant that you had to be a missionary. It meant that you had to actually, in order to fulfill this, it was for the super Christians. It would go out in the middle of uh, some overseas country where the gospel has not been heard. And again, I'm not saying that that's not necessary because it is, and I'll tell you in a minute why. But I grew up with this very distinction that this verse applied to like me hopping on a plane. And then I had a lot of people that I heard and saw that were doing this, and I realized that like, the very thing that they're trying to do globally, they're not even doing locally. So what is going on? What is the disconnect? And I remember reading in Acts 1.8, this is shortly after Jesus has this great commission pep talk. This is his very last words before he leaves earth. He says, but you to his disciples will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And I remember looking at this text because we need to understand that Jerusalem represents where they were. Samaria represents where they didn't want to go and the ends of the earth represented where they had not been. So essentially what this is saying is you're to go everywhere. You're to go everywhere and make disciples, not just to the ends of the earth, but you need to go across the freeway to those people that you don't like because they too ghetto for you. The people that you view just as charity, but not community. Nope, those people made in God's image. I'm sorry. He's saying it's everywhere. Notice all authority. Notice he has these distinctions to go make disciples of all nations. I don't know if you know this, but all means all. I checked the Greek. I checked the Hebrew. I checked the, I checked the Urban Dictionary. Even there, it still means all, okay? Don't, don't look at Urban Dictionary. That is not a pastoral recommendation. That is not a pastoral recommendation. But he says, wherever you are at, go. But the main action here is the word make. To make what? To make disciples. This word disciple can be found 269 times in the New Testament. It is the most prevalent title for a follower of Jesus. You know, the word Christian is only used three times. One of them was used by the enemies of the church. And Christian was actually a derogatory word that they were using at him. So if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, the title that the New Testament is, is saying that is the most prolific, most prevalent title for you is a disciple. Is a disciple. And if you have no context of understanding what a disciple is, a very standard definition is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. A disciple is a follower or a learner, someone who takes up the waves the ways of someone else. And, and if I can give you another term that I think will help you sit in the reality of this, it does, a disciple is an apprentice. It's an apprentice. Applied to Jesus, a disciple is someone who learns from him 
to live like him. Someone who, because of God's grace, obeys, conforms his or her words and ways to the words and ways of Jesus. It's someone who is adopting the lifestyle of Jesus because they want to experience the life that Jesus offers. We have way too many people want the life that Jesus offers, but not the lifestyle in which he lived it. Listen to what Jesus says about what a disciple is in Matthew 10. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher or a slave above his master. It is enough for a disciple to become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they call the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? We need to understand that disciples are made. It says, go and make disciples. Disciples are not born. And how they are made is through this process called discipleship. Discipleship. I love the way that Dallas Willard puts it. He says, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. The process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. Our definition, one of our definitions that we love to to use when it comes to this idea of discipleship is ordinarily living like Jesus to become like Jesus. We use the term ordinarily because it encompasses all parts of our life. Most people don't realize that how you eat, how you clean, how you hike and the going to the beach and, and doing all these things, how you work, how you um, remain hospitable in your life, all of those little ordinary mundane parts of your life is discipleship. Because all of those, all of those are opportunities for you to become more like Jesus. So disciples are made and not born. And Jesus provides an invitation for his followers. He, he has this phrase, come and follow me. Follow me. In the, in the first century, to be a disciple under a rabbi, a teacher, means that you followed them everywhere. You looked at their mannerisms. You began to speak like them. They, they, they used to have maybe like a, a, a mannerism where they, you know, uh, were very talkative with their hands. All of a sudden, you started talking with your hands. It's just you imitated your rabbi because you were his disciple. And Jesus tells him, follow me. And then he, he has this crazy, he has this crazy verse. It's not going to be up there because c- you're going to hear it. And, and if you've heard it before, I mean, it, it's crazy. Jesus has these sayings sometimes. You just got to look back and be like, Jesus, Really? But in Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, some of y'all like easy, (laughs) does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, uh uh-oh, don't say anything about that one, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Metaphorically, Jesus is, he's using the word hate as a very strong word to show how great the difference must be between your allegiance to Jesus and your allegiance to everyone and everything else. He, he doesn't, don't, don't be going out here and be like, Jesus told me to hate on you. Nah, y'all tripping. Y'all tripping. But he's saying 
that your allegiance to me has to be so great. You need to be following me so closely that it looks like you hate everything else. Does our life look like that? Because you and I, we're all being discipled by someone or something. We are. Whether it's a politician every four years that you put your hopes in still. That was a painful giggle. I know that was a painful giggle for some of y'all. It's the, it's the, it's the, the talking head, the podcast that you listen to five hours throughout the week. It's maybe even your boss, the person that you're trying to impress most. As men, like, you know, we're easily discipled. Like, I got Lakers jerseys in my house to put on the, the, the jersey of another team. But here's, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, am I worthy of your attention more than anything else? Because if Jesus is not, and I'm not saying this in a moral, you need to pursue this in a moralistic way. You need to go out and start performing for it. What I'm saying is, does Jesus have your ultimate affections? Ultimate. Because the, the things that we make ultimate outside of God are what he calls idols. So we're all being discipled by someone or something. Listen to the way you react to things. Listen to the way that you react to those people that make you upset. Listen to the way you react when that news anchor says something that about dehumanizing someone else and you agree with that. And I've said it before, but anything that makes you feel good about loving your neighbor less is godless. Anything that makes you feel good about loving your neighbor less is godless. And so we need to pay attention because our reactions are revelations. Our re, the way we, we react to things often reveal who we are a disciple of. And so the aim for us is to identify as being disciples of Jesus. And I love that he has this last part. He says, disciples of all nations. I've said this before. One of my favorite things, when anyone asks me about portrait, one of my favorite things is when I look out, I see all nations. I see all ethnic groups. That's the kingdom of God. He says to go make disciples, not just with people who look like you. Act, that's easy. You're making uh, social time. I don't know what you want to call it. But he says, go make disciples of all nations. So this should impact the way that we pursue community. This should impact the way that we show up in our community. You know, one of the things um, when we first moved out here, one of the things that I saw was I, I wanted to go to different events in the city because I wanted to see where the church was present. And I'll be honest with you, I went the first year we were out here to Sylvan Park. It was the first ever Juneteenth celebration. I have a good relationship with them and they already know I clowned on them. So don't be, you know, emailing them being like, did you hear what Jay said? Nah, we are, I already talked to Miss Green, okay? But the historic black church in the city was the only church there at this event. And they were passing out cassette takes. That, that's what I was cracking. I'm like, Miss Green, people don't know what that is. Young, young people think that you're trying to pay Xbox or something. That's not, 
But what I saw from the historic black church out here was a desire to be in solidarity with the community. That same park, two weeks go by. Fourth of July event, 18 churches. 18 churches. So what I'm saying is nothing wrong with celebrating your country. I'm all for that. But what I'm saying is if we are going to be a church that disciples all nations, we need to show up where all nations are present. We need to show up where all nations are present. Many of you are here today that I look out. It's amazing that you're here, but we met you at Juneteenth because we said we're going to be there this year. And we met y'all here. And so as a church, we have to be willing to be in places where all nations are represented. No matter how uncomfortable it feels, no matter if we understand the language, because one day we are going to be worshiping before the creator, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that is what we want to see here and now. It says to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism identifies us with Jesus through immersion under water. We are united with the death of Christ. And through the coming out of the water, we are united with the resurrection and new life found in Christ. Some of us are baptized to believe the second part, just the new life. Oh, follow Jesus, man. Everything is going to be great. Everything is going to come out how you want. But no one wants to talk about the part where we need to actually be unified with his death. Unified with his suffering. Oh, we want a theology of a good life, but not a way of thinking about death and suffering. We want a magic pill about everything turning out the way we want, but not suffering. Can I remind you again, that's how Jesus got his authority. Romans 8, 17 says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We got to believe this, y'all. We're about to have baptism next Sunday. We got two people right now signed up to bat for baptism. I am excited. So excited. But if I am telling them that, oh man, once you get baptized, everything gonna work out, baby. It's all gonna be good. That's not the baptism that he's talking about here. Back in that Matthew 10 verse, Jesus says to them, if they called the head of the house, which is him, Beelzebul, how much more will they do to you? What he's saying there is if they call me the devil, how much, what are they going to do to you? Persecution. See, following Jesus, again, means that you identify with all the goodness, but you have to be able to identify with the suffering. And the problem is many of our discipleship doesn't have a category for suffering. Many of the ways that people disciple and grow people in the church doesn't have a category for suffering. So when COVID and the political tensions and the racial tensions, people did not have a category for that level of suffering because it hasn't been discipled into them. 
Dallas Willard in The Great Omission says that the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of heaven into every corner of human existence. The great omission of the Great Commission is this, that we are to teach people to obey everything. What Dallas Willard is getting at is he's like, well, are you actually going to do what you say? Christian, are you actually going to pursue obeying everything, not just what you prefer? You see, it's really easy to get caught up into knowledge transformation. But what Jesus is about is character transformation. It's really easy in our social media age to, to gain knowledge from posts or to, to post knowledge even to, to, to show how much you know. But what you don't see on social media is how that person treats his family when he goes home. Oh, he sound real good. Oh, you liked it. You shared it. But his own family wouldn't do it. You see, we live in a society where we have people that obsess with looking good instead of being good. Obsessed with, with, with showing people how much they know and not being close to people so that they could see the transformation power of Christ working in their life. I think as Christians, we need to beware as a disciple of Jesus, we need to beware of Christians that tell you a lot of things about God with zero to hardly any honest stories about how hard it is to follow him. I think we need to beware of Christians that can't tell you anything about their shortcomings, but can tell you a whole lot about other people's shortcomings. We need to beware of Christians who, in their state of knowing everything, don't allow you to have spaces of doubt. Listen. In that verse, right before Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, when they came up to the mountainside, it says this. Now, this is the first time seeing them. It says, when the disciples saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. They, some worshiped, but some doubted. Beware of a discipleship that makes you feel like you got to perform your way out of doubt. Because... For us, doubt is a common experience amongst believers. It's part of our discipleship process. That's why so many people over the last years have done this thing called deconstructing because they have doubts about the way that Christianity has been proclaimed and it's not adding up to how it's lived. But the problem with doubting and deconstruction is when it's done without God. Now, the best part about Christianity and the honor that we have is that we get to be God's messengers. The worst part is that we are God's messengers. <laughs> and if we are not honest about how hard it is to follow Jesus, if we are not honest about our weaknesses and our mistakes on this path of becoming more like him, then we're not painting a true picture of discipleship. Doubt, for many of you, is actually a sign of a living faith. You're thinking deeply about these things. 
Jesus, he commissioned some of these very people there who had doubted. If Jesus is okay with people that doubt a little bit around him, I think you can be too. Eugene Peterson says that discipleship is long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. Can I tell you, nobody has perfect obedience. That's why we say that we are a community of practice. We want to practice the way of Jesus and we want to portray the way of Jesus together. It doesn't say we want to perform this faith perfectly, that we're going to disciple people perfectly. It says that we, we want to be a community of practice because there's a promise in Philippians 1 that says, he who started a good work in you will carry it to completion. Long obedience in the same direction. And I love, I love Jesus starts with the promise. All authority has been given to me. He gives us his charge and he ends with a promise. He says, surely I will be with you always. Always. Not sometimes, not only when you're doing good, not only when you've prayed X amount of times a week, not only when you open your Bible X amount of times a week. He says, I am going to be with you always because I'm in this for your character and that being transformed, not some behavior modification with a little sprinkle of Jesus. No. Character transformation. Obedience in the long same direction. And you cannot do this on your own. That's why when those final words, I am sending you out, you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the one who can comfort you, who can help you, who can convict you, who can give you new life, new birth. That Holy Spirit is going to take residence inside of you. It is going to be your guiding, directing force. That if you put your faith in me, I'm always going to be with you. I'm sending you a helper. And I love the way in the, um, the message translation, this, this lifestyle, this way of following Jesus. I love the way Eugene Peterson, the same guy who just gave us that definition for discipleship. I love the way he articulates this. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn from, learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-lifting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. You see, the way of Jesus, becoming like Jesus, being discipled, being and making other disciples, it is a very, it is a very long and hard journey, but he's saying that, that it's still light. That doing it with me has a lightness to it. It, it means that you don't got to perform about this. It means that I want you to practice this. I sent my son. He did it perfectly. Now I just, I want you to, I want you to be with him. I want you to become like him. I want you to do what he did. Mike Breen says that if you make disciples, you always get the church. But if you make a church, you rarely get disciples. If you make a church, you rarely, look, we're not just about you showing up on Sunday 
being entertained by some phenomenal worship. We're not about that. We're about you encountering a living God where you can stir, your affections are stirred, your attention is set on him, and you walk away being like, how can I become more like him? Because our community needs a renewed picture of Jesus. The world needs a renewed picture of the church. Just like that church, just like that village in Ontario, Canada. They needed a renewed picture of Jesus because that man had came and abused the picture. So there would be this couple, 52 years from that moment, who would decide that we want to go give them a renewed picture of Jesus. In our discipleship of becoming like Jesus, we want to do what he did and we want to go to the least, we want to go to the margins. We want to give them a renewed picture. So this couple, I can't tell you the name for security purposes, but they would, would commit to going to this lake, to this village. You can only get to this village two times out of the year when the ice freezes over so you can cross it. That's where they wanted to go. So they pulled up to the village. They started making residence in a, a town right next door to the village. And the, the chief of the village said, you guys are not welcome here. We know what Christians are about. You are absolutely cannot step foot in this village. They said, it's okay. We understand what you're going through. We will be here. We're going to be on this outside. We're going to be praying. Whenever you guys need anything, we will be there for you. Well, the village daughter would get ill. And she would actually get so ill that she would be on her deathbed. And word got back to this couple who had moved over there and, and they found a way to say, can we just go and pray for your daughter? We, we don't want to do anything. We're not trying to, cur- we just want to pray that God would heal her. The village chief was so at a loss. Yes, fine, pray. I, so at a loss because he's seeing his very daughter die. This couple goes and they, they lay hands and they just begin praying. The next morning, she wakes up instantly healed. Instantly. The village chief is amazed. He's like, what power are y'all coming in? What authority do you have? It's authority of Jesus. So now, not only because of this, they have access to go love on this village The chief's daughter was the first person in the village to get baptized because she saw and experienced the power of a man who came and saved her from not just her, not just her, her sickness, but saved her from a, from a life that was purposeless. The first woman to get baptized in that village, the chief's daughter. This is the renewed picture that I believe our community here, the Inland Empire, needs of Jesus. People who are going in full power and authority, not because of us, but because it comes from him. And so my invitation for you here is that we cannot treat the Great Commission like the Great Suggestion. That our goal as a church is not to have 50,000 different programs, but it is to come alongside and care because we are all on a long, obedient journey to become more like Jesus. 